Even as the culture moves away from faith, each person still has a relentless desire for something more, something higher in life. Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. First Liberty Institute created something recently called the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. I, I want to read you the vision statement for it. We're going to talk about it today uh, as we go along, and I'll also give you a website at the end of the uh, episode here. The vision is CRCD envisions democratic societies which affirm the essential role of religious convictions, peoples, and institutions in cultivating free and flourishing communities. And one of the senior fellers, fellers, <laughs> I'm from Kentucky, sorry about that. <laughs> one of the senior fellows from CRCD is here with us today. Reverend John Nunes is a senior fellow at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. He has a PhD. He's a Lutheran pastor, former president of Concordia College, New York, uh, former president and CEO of Lutheran World Relief, and he loves to focus, and this is why I wanted to talk to him today, on the intersection of theology and culture and where those two come together and meet. As featured in your recent book, which happens to be on the big screen, Meant for More, In, With, and Under the Ordinary, which is provocative, and we'll talk about that. Hi, John. Hi, Stuart. Good to be with you today. Thanks. It is good to have you here. As I was flipping through your book, there's a, a full-page quote early in the early pages of the book. I just want to read it to set this up. You quote Charles Taylor. He says, the sense that there is something more presses in. Our age is very far from settling into a comfortable unbelief. The unrest continues to surface. You wanted to set that as the, the centerpiece as you started this book. Tell us what that underlying unrest is all about. Yeah, thanks very much, Stuart. So uh, a sense I get is that many times in our culture, we think that religion has disappeared or everyone's kind of uh, post-scientific, atheistic, agnostic, or something like that. The point I was trying to make with that quote is that God has built us and designed us with a yearning for the things of God for that which is good, for that which is true, for that which is beautiful. And he's given us eyes and a heart to pine for those things. St. Augustine said it really well. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our souls are restless until they find rest in you. Yeah. And so this restlessness, the, the, uh, it continues to surface, according to Charles Taylor. And it shows up when religion is then replaced by things like politics or John McWhorter has written a new book and he himself is an atheist but he describes the way religion is replaced by wokeism so a kind of frenzied fervor over a political agenda and that's a place I think where we can connect even with people who seriously disagree with us on issues because even though verbally out loud they're speaking things that are in direct opposition to what we believe, we know that somewhere in their heart they're desiring, because God placed it there, to move the same direction that we're trying to move our lives toward. Absolutely. We, you know, we all have a natural knowledge for these things. Um, another thing Augustine said that, uh, you know, it's not the sin is a disordered desire. It's not the desire itself. Yeah, so that's a great description. This desire for love is a good thing, but when it's love outside of the fireplace, it burns down the house. Yeah, chaotic. I, the title of the book includes this phrase, it's in, with, and under, and it, you, you call that a strategy. What do you mean by that? How do we apply that? Sure, Stuart. There was a Lutheran guy named Martin Luther. 
I've heard the yeah, name. Yeah, right on. It's not a good carpenter. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so um, Jesus was the carpenter. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but he had to hammer things on the door. On the Why door. Do oh, that? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, just trying to make a point. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if, he, if it were social media, then he would have used uh, social media to, exactly. get his, to get his word out. Yeah. Um, so uh, Luther makes this uh, distinction around how a sacrament in Lutheran kind of categories, so the Lord's Supper or baptism, how Christ is present there. And he, he says it's indescribable the ways in which Christ is present. So let's just say, and then he picks these three prepositions, in, with, and under. And what I'd like to say is that as people are searching for the more in their life, rather than seeking that in the sensational or in the spectacular, it's in, with, and under the ordinary things, the ordinary relationships, the ordinary callings, the things that God has called us to pay attention to that, it, right, that, is right, that are right in front of us. Okay, give me a description of that using each of the prepositions so we get it. Okay, so in means you're invested. Uh, in other words, you're not just merely uh, standing on the sidelines as a spectator to whatever it is you're watching, but we are called to be invested in the lives of others. With means you're not standing over them or talking at them or uh, yelling at them, which we, do, which we do well in our culture, yeah. but you're actually engaging them and accompanying them like Jesus accompanies the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You're which, walking with them, working with them. Which can be messy, but that's part of it. Exactly. And then under uh, suggests, well, it, with it, all three of them are messy, right? Yeah. I mean, the way the, these things happen. But under suggests that we position ourselves in a place where we're not standing again over people, but we're providing support for them so that they can live out what God has called them to do and to be. Yeah. I, okay, so that was in and under. How does with fit in there? With oh, is you you're walking with them, working okay, with them. It. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to get it because I'm yeah, you're getting it. Yeah. So, but and the the sense that I'm getting is if we live that out, if if we engage people in our sphere, and we're in with them, we're with them as they go through the trials of this life and alongside them. If we're if we're supporting them under them. That's going to build up in them a natural desire to seek out the things that cause us to do that. Am I following your logic? It seems to me, Stuart, that people of faith are always up to trying to figure out what God is up to in the world. Yeah. And this is a way we can figure it out in these kinds of relationships, which mirror the image of God. Because the image of God is about Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect relationship. So as we work in, with, and under the lives of others, we can build relationships that lead to good things, like people going to heaven. Yeah. No one's ever been argued to God, is what I like That's to it. say. And if you can argue someone to God, you can easily argue them out of God. Very, very well put. Our, our culture is a mess. Uh, you talk about people, and I experienced this in my, in my adopted home state of Colorado, where I lived for almost 20 years. I'm going to read the quote, and it'll make sense when people hear it. Uh, you talk about people whose sensitivities live between being both content with the beauty of this world and devastatingly restless about the ugliness that happens in it. Some in my adopted home state of Colorado is a beautiful place, and, and we love to go driving up in the mountains and take in the beauty that God placed there. The sunrises, the clouds, because I'm a former meteorologist, I watch the clouds, the lenticular clouds are cool. What? Lenticular. Well, that's okay. a 20-minute lecture for right. later. But this is Lent. I thought maybe it was related to that. No, okay. it's, they look like flying saucers. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, and in the sunset, they're cool, and you'll mm -hmm. see photos. And people will say they are flying saucers, but that's for, that's for another conversation. <laughs> but the point being, it's gorgeous there. But yet the politics, 
the drug culture. Yeah. There's a there's yeah. a human trafficking going on up and down the interstate. It is a place of supreme ugliness at the same time. Yeah. So so I think Christians can fall off the log on one side or the other, which is why I try to make this point. At the end of the day, this is still God's world. In other words. God still created all of the beauty that you're describing, including lenticular clouds exactly. that are around I'll, I'll us. I'll share with you how to spell it. So you, you can use that in Scrabble. It's a good <laughs> one. <laughs> it's still God's world. Yeah. And we know who wins at the end as well in terms of the new world uh, that God is creating. We know who wins. We know who gets the victory. I, I mean, if there are two words that describe the book of Revelation, for, for example, it's God wins. So we see that. So it's God's. Yeah. But of course, it's a broken world. It's a falling world. It's a devastatingly broken world. And so we grieve the fact that the world has pain and people are broken and people place the world as if it, they, re, they replace God with the world. So they have all these substitutes around their various idolatries. So I think it's a, it's a combination of the two. So we don't disavow the world on the one hand. We're in the world, to be sure, and it's God's world, and neither do we disavow the ugliness in the world. In fact, we try to make it better. Yeah, and, and as Christians, we should not be surprised that that's how people are living. Often I see people, oh, I can't believe that's happening. I can perfectly believe it's happening. Of course. Because that's what a sinful world is like. Exactly. You know, you have, you have some guy shooting in some community, and someone says, things like this don't happen in our community. Yeah, they do. All yeah, the time. They happen everywhere. Uh, you say there are two extremes to avoid, and you, you've hinted at this already, but I want to get you to unpack it a bit. One is the idea of withdrawing from culture entirely. Correct. Uh, which some people do. They say, oh, we've got to separate ourselves completely. We've got to protect our kids, for example, from everything in culture. Or we end up being over-invested in it. I mean, we invite Netflix into the home and all these other cultural influences in, the music and all. You say neither of those really fulfills the biblical directive to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we find that harmony to be yeah. the one and the other without giving in to one extreme or the other? So it seems like Jesus is, you know, the example par, par none, bar none, right? Yeah. So Jesus shows up, right, and he's, he's, he takes on a human form. He embodies himself within a particular culture at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. He shows up and he walks like one of us and he is one of us. And then the people come along and they sense that there's something special about this Jesus. Yeah. And they try to co-opt him uh, politically and, uh, and from a power basis to try to take over the world. Yeah. And then he says, my kingdom's not of this world. But he, so he, I think, you know, it, it's always something that the spirit leads us to discern. But we need to be always asking the question, am I overly invested in the things of this world or am I, or am I overly divested from the things of this world? Because we can't, I mean, John 3.16 is for God so... Love the world. Yeah. And he does. And he did. I, uh, another thing you point out... And then 17 is even more important. For God yeah. did not send the Son uh, to condemn the world, but that through him the world can be saved. Exactly. I, another thing you point out, and, and especially in the work that I've done for a living for, for more than 20 years now, this, this is so vital, and I've, I've said it in other ways, but you expressed it in a, in a really delightful, poetic way. We're not supposed to hit back at the world. Uh, the work that we do, people are going to criticize us, they're going to come after us, they're going to say nasty things about us, they're going to unfriend us on Facebook. Um, you say we're not supposed to punch back. I mean, the human tendency is we want to hit them back. You say instead we should be a counterpoint. And you use that word in the musical sense. Unpack that for us. 
Yeah, thanks for uh, reading the book so carefully. I'm really, I'm like... There was good stuff in there. I'm really honored, yeah. yeah. Um, and the artwork's good, too. I mean, Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, <laughs> uh, Stuart. So one of the points I'm making here, the obvious point I'm making here, is that Christian witness is compromised if it's not a witness that demonstrates a witness in the lives of people. That, that's kind of the obvious point. Okay. The le less obvious, but maybe more important point for democracy is that if we cannot figure out a way to be in dialogue with one another, then we will have shipwrecked one of the greatest gifts we have in the Western world. So Aristotle says that a democracy is free people deliberating the question, deliberating by the way is the verb, yeah. not, you know, not killing one another or uh, you know, destroying one another or, or engaging in diatribes tribes with one another or sending people into tribes rather than dealing with one another. So free people deliberating the question, how ought we, and that oughtness implies a kind of moral feature. It's such an important word. It is. How ought we order our lives together? Now we're talking about the ordering of life. Yeah. And so I'm concerned that democracy is at stake if we can't figure out a way not to be at war with the world, but to engage the world as people of faith to live out the freedoms that God has given to us. So the work we do here at First Liberty Institute is specifically about all we do is religious freedom cases. We're a nonprofit law firm that, that exclusively does religious freedom. Everything you've just described really plays into what we do, but sometimes we have to go to court. How does that fit in to everything you just described, that idea of, okay, now we gotta, now we gotta, it's gotta get serious, lawyer up and take it into court. How do we live out everything you just said, but still do that? Well, I love the way you are using the structures that are instituted, I believe, by God. So I don't think just, uh, you know, the church is instituted by God. I think the society as a whole is instituted by God. I mean, okay. Romans seems to bear that out, you know, yeah. uh, that God has established families and he's established uh, marriage and government even. That's, I'm less confident in that one, but <laughs> nonetheless, God yeah. establishes that. Uh, but clearly, you know, judicial systems are established by God. So I think as we uh, carry out our pursuit of justice within the systems, that playing by the rules that we've all kind of commonly agreed to, yeah. uh, accepting the defeats when they happen, you know, not they're gonna engaging, happen. they're going to happen. Yeah. Not trying to make this world into a heaven, because that's not going to ever happen. And every pursuit of utopia has ended up creating a living hell on earth. But living within the world and understanding that this finally at the end of the day is only a penultimate experiment. It's not the ultimate thing we're after. Um, then I, I applaud First Liberty for engaging the world in that sort of way. Okay. I, uh, one way, and, and you mentioned a, a couple of them, one, one way that we can maintain, I, I, I'm trying to think how to set this up because my belief is, and I, I think it's, it's self-evident, that a certain level of Christian understanding in human beings maintains a culture. It's not that they necessarily have to ascribe to everything that Christianity says, but we all hold to certain things that we just know are right. It's wrong to murder. Uh, we shouldn't you know, run the red light. Those, that, that base level of understanding, that, that much of which comes out of Christian thought. 
I would say most comes out of Christian thought. Yeah. Ju the Judeo-Christian tradition is what has really formed and founded the West. And, and it, it allows a society like ours to function, a, a, a society that values liberty. The only way we can do that is each, if each of us self-regulates to some basic level. It's not that people don't do stupid things, but there's this basic undercurrent. Mind you, what I'm hearing you say is our institutions are what maintain that base level of culture. And institutions from the most, the, the smallest unit, the family unit, all the way up. Describe what you mean by that. How do institutions I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot from you, uh, Stuart. I, I, I'm stuck back there on your word, self-regulation. <laughs> uh, and as a father of six grown children now and one 20-something-year-old boy, uh, I'm struck that self-regulation is um, really at the core of this and at the core of one of the reasons we really need institutions. Okay. Because we can't merely count on individuals to self-regulate, to use your term. Yeah. Um, and in institutions give us then protection. Uh, and they give us continuity in terms of any project that we're involved with. So the project called Western Civilization well, obviously began before you and I got here and it's gonna be going on a lot longer after we are here. And in order for it to be perpetuated, there needs to be a, a certain level of institution, institutional life. I, I'm, I'm struck by analogy, the uh, cathedral at Chartres okay. in France had builders who um, died uh, before builders were born who completed the construction of that project. Yeah. So anything good that we're up to in God's name in the world will take longer than any of our lifetimes to accomplish. That's a whole other conversation because so much of our culture right now is based on self-fulfillment exactly in the right. moment. And but instantaneous. God, but yeah. God's view is that long arc That's where right. we're part of a bigger story. That's right. So it doesn't, you know, and it's, you know, so if you think it depends on you, just die. <laughs> You'll find out. It'll be earth to earth and ashes to ashes over you and then coffee and cake over the next guy who's sitting in, yeah. in Stewart's or John's chairs. Exactly. Uh, so it doesn't depend on us. This thing is bigger than us. The project is larger than ours. And so this is, I think, one of the things that institutions ensure. Now, institutionalization is a different problem. I mean, that's part of what's gone wrong in Washington, D.C., and, you know, bureaucratization and institutionalization, which is kind of a dead thing that leads to not much of anything. We need, we need some definitions here. When you say institutions, give right. me a list of what you're talking about. What are the key institutions we need? A, a, a group. Oh, that's very good. So I've named them, right? Yeah. So marriage and family is an institution. It's a structure. Okay. Uh, um, and this is why marriage is so important. A lot of people in our culture right now think, eh, marriage, we'll just yeah. live together. We don't need a piece of paper. You're saying that institution is vital. Yeah, the, the, the fundamental commitment that you make in a marriage, the hardest thing you'll probably ever do in your life, <laughs> uh, shapes and forms and conforms you to the image of God's own son. I believe that. Um, second, uh, we need uh, mediating institutions. You know, I, I have a I have a, a hard time with large institutions, like the larger institutions get. I think the worst job they do at a macro level. Speaking of the federal government, but go ahead. Meeting is, that was a easy, that was a easy, that was a cheap shot, yeah. Well, but it's so, true, it's, it shows what can happen. So we need to build those institutions in neighborhoods and build those institutions, uh, local political entities because I think politics and government is still something in which God is up to work. Institutions are people who have gathered together around a commonly agreed end telos 
or pursuit, yeah. and they sublimate their own, this is your self-regulation, right? They sublimate their own kind of needs, drives, and or desires in order to accomplish this agreed upon purpose for the sake of something that's bigger than any of them are. So it's not a bunch of individuals doing their own thing, but it's people working together toward common ends. Yeah, signing up for life. Very good. Is the church one of those institutions? Of course it is. How does it yeah. fit into this as well? Then? Well, the church is absolutely an institution, but it's, it's a, it can be a fallen institution as well, right? Because every single one of these structures that we've just described have embedded within them this thing called sin in the world. But I believe that um, just because institutions struggle does not mean we need to burn them down and start over again. I believe that the healing is found within the wound and that the institutions themselves bear the seed or they are the habitats for hope for the future. So it's not about abandoning the institutions. It's about investing in, with, and under the institutions yeah. in order that we can make them and ourselves better. Now, before we began this conversation, I ask you, I've got some questions, but I cheated, I'll confess. And I said, is there anything you want to talk about? And one of the things you mentioned was this. So I'm going to quote it. And this is a topic that, frankly, it's been a hot-button issue in the United States for at least 70 years now. But particularly in the last couple of years, it seems to have come back to the forts and the headlines and all. And I'm going to read your, your statement and then get you to comment on it. You say that, that race is a, I'm, I'm messing it up already. You say race is a fiction, but racism is a fact. Am I saying it right? Or am it's I getting it backwards? 100% right. Okay. Yeah. So, what do you, what do you I, so when I say race is a fiction, I mean, if you, the, the um, let's see, deoxyribonucleic acid, that's DNA, right? The yeah. DNA differences between, so, so and no, and a, no, stu a student, well, yeah, you said <laughs> lenticular, so I thought I'd say deoxyribonucleic. <laughs> I'll say it twice because I had to Show practice off. it. <laughs> so one of my students taught me that term. But, but DNA, the DNA differences between so-called races are actually less than the DNA differences within so-called races. So really? scientific, absolutely. Yeah. Scientifically, biologically, genetically, race is a fiction, okay? Um, so from a genotypal point of view. So if you just, if you took us apart, looked right. at each cell and yeah. pulled out the strands right. that define what we are physically. There's one race, it's called human. It's just us. That's it. All right. But Good. in the United States, it's been more than 70 years, it's probably been 400 years, who knows? Yeah probably since the institution of slavery, um, race has become a fact. In other words, we've segregated and separated ourselves from other people based on phenotypes, which is a basic appearance. Yeah. But, the, but back to my earlier point, the healing is found in the wound. I believe the United States can do things that no other country in the world can do because we've grappled more intensely with diversity, there, there I said that dirty word, we've grappled more intensely with diversity than any other country in the world. So New York City where I live, right? Yeah. 800 different languages spoken among 20 million people. There's no other megalopolis on the planet that is that diverse. So I really believe, you know, we gotta get back to more of the unum out of the e pluribus, but let's pay some attention to that pluribus because the kind of pluralism that we have in our nation is an incredible gift. And I actually believe that it's God's gift. I think God is up to something in that. So if we, if we accept that we're the same human race, that's the foundation for us at least having conversations about this and figuring out the places that we connect. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely, God has made us all for more. We're all meant for more. 
Uh, anything else you'd like to share before I let you go? No, I'm just delighted uh, with this. Uh, you, you, you go fast and you're, you're smart and uh, you give me hope. Can you tell my mom that? <laughs> <laughs> Give her some encouragement. Hey, what's your next book? You got another one in the work? I do. I have one in the work. It's on based on institutions and structures. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's why you wanted to talk about that. John Nunes, so good talking to you. Thanks so much, Lots Stuart. of thoughtful stuff in there to chew on. Hey, we want you to connect with the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. As I mentioned, uh, John is a senior fellow with that, with that uh, effort of First Liberty Institute. The, the way that you can find it the, and read more about it is to go to crcd.net. N-E-T. So CRCD for Center Religion, Culture, and Democracy dot net. There's lots of information there about the various activities that go on with that. There's a fellows program. There's the Shaftesbury Fellowship, uh, which just kicked off this past year. It was phenomenal. The young people that came in for that, yeah, I they were, I mean, yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> you said I was smart, but not sitting next to them. I'm like, holy cow, who are these young people? <laughs> Gave me hope for the future. So uh, drop by there and read up on it. You will appreciate what, and it will be a, a place where more and more information will be added, including uh, great thoughts from people just like John. So CRCD.net. We will see you next time right here on First Liberty Live.